This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Where we're going, we don't need roads. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Good morning, Vietnam! I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! They call it a royale with cheese. I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Shaken, not stirred. They call me Mr. Tibbs. I'll have what she's having. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You make me want to be a better man. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Go ahead. Make my day. You can't handle the truth. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. May the force be with you. To infinity and beyond. They're here. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Yes, we are, because this is the greatest movie of all time podcast. What a weird way to start the podcast. Your phone goes off and it's your good, the bad, the ugly ring. We've got a quarantine family dinner coming up after this. So, of course, there's going to be dogs barking and kitchen noises all over the place. And welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. So, um, we're back yet again for uh, another movie. Um, we didn't advertise it last week. We ended up deciding on 1959's Some Like It Hot. Um, one of the, uh, possible best directors of all time, uh, with, uh, Billy Wilder. Um, so, uh, I guess where should we, ah, we will, uh, get you the plot summary here. So, after witnessing a mafia murder, slick saxophone player Joe, played by Tony Curtis, and his long-suffering buddy Jerry, Jack Lemon, improvise a quick plan to escape from Chicago with their lives. Disguising themselves as women, they join an all-female jazz band and hop a train bound for sunny Florida. <laughs> While Joe pretends to be a millionaire to win the band's sexy singer, Sugar, played by Marilyn Monroe, Jerry finds himself pursued by a real millionaire, Joe E. Brown, as things heat up and the mobsters close in. So, um, I think you're a little bit fresher off of this one. Uh, you just watched it, uh, I think, either last night or today. Uh, I watched it a few days ago. Um, initial reaction? Uh, it's an extremely well-done film comedy, and it was cutting edge in the fact that it addressed... Um, both transvestite or being a transvestite and uh, to some extent homosexuality. <clears throat> so to some extent, in fact, they actually hired a professional transvestite who did stage shows 
to coach Tony Randall, I mean, Tony Curtis and uh, Jack Lemon on how to uh, portray women in drag. Yeah, frankly, I mean, more than anything else, that's what sticks out uh, to me about this movie is just how incredibly novel it is um, that in the 50s, you still had the Hayes Code um, being extremely limiting on movies. This is way ahead of its time. I mean, there is literally nothing like this till probably about the 80s. Um, and you just have such uh, a reverence for it, even to the fact that it got turned into a Broadway play and then musical, um, not even a decade later, um, that's still being remade and redone multiple times over. Well, the interesting thing, too, is is this is one of the few movies that were released and had huge box office draw that was not uh, sanctioned by the actual um, movie code, the Hayes Code. <clears throat> there was no way they were going to be able to get this approved. So Billy Wilder just said, I don't care. I'm not going to. And in fact, it did as well as it did without playing in the Bible Belt. I mean, this did not go in the deep south uh, in the movie theaters. Yeah, and I mean, it's not a coincidence that this is about the same time as uh, you had something like Spartacus um, coming out and um, really also being part of, I, I would say there's a set of films that really turned the whole uh, Hollywood image of uh, being extremely conservative on its ear right going into the 60s as we were about to kind of culturally change as a country. Usually um, art starts reflecting um, a lot of the changing times before um, we actually get there as a total public. So it's, it's really not that shocking overall that we kind of got to this area. Well, and for whatever you want to say about Billy Wilder, Billy Wilder always had a statement to make on culture. Um, a, another film that we'll end up, I'm sure, reviewing at some point is a 1962 film that Jack Lemmon was in with Billy Wilder called The Apartment. Uh, which, uh, 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 you're getting, you're jumping the gun, and it's not 1962. It was 1960, and we were going to come back around to that here at uh, the end. So, so don't spoil the thunder a little too early. But yes, I would, I would tend to agree with that. I'll let you finish your point though. The point I was going to make was is that <clears throat> Billy Wilder was calling into question the whole um, office sex campaigns that were going on and were real key in the 50s and actually continued into the 60s, which is the whole basis for the TV show on AMC called Mad Men, which was that this kind of internal sex politics in the office was uh, was or continued and went on and um, <clears throat> was part of it. Um, you know, so Billy Wilder's always, and then there's another film that the first film that Jack Lemon did with Billy Wilder, he teamed with uh, Walter Matthau is called the fortune cookie, <clears throat> which addressed um, insurance fraud. So Billy Wilder's always looked for some aspect of, of society and tried to challenge it by almost lampooning it. Like, I don't want to put it ahead of the, um, or the uh, cart ahead of the horse, 
But like, as far as people who pushed um, topics and really um, the forefront of different um, ideas within Hollywood, not necessarily from like just a, a pure directorial front, um, but he has to stand among the top people um, and probably is one of the more uncomfortable yet um, popular directors uh, before somebody like Kubrick, who kind of pushed the envelope in a whole bunch of different ways um, starting in the 60s. So, you know, I do put him in a certain pantheon of, um, you know, the classic directors of the age. Well, and I, I compare it to when you start talking about this, <clears throat> and Kubrick was just weird, okay? And well, his that's... films reflected it. And But really, if you're talking about pushing the envelope, somebody that was really influenced significantly by Billy Wilder was uh, Blake Edwards, who did the Pink Panther films, but in the 80s did Victor Victoria, did... Um, all these different films that challenge the whole concept of sexuality and started really uh, addressing the whole homosexuality issue. In fact, uh, several of his characters, um, Robert Weber plays a homosexual in the movie 10. He's the writing partner of Dudley Moore. And so I know that Blake Edwards has a, an homage to Billy Wilder and taking some of these risks. And it's not a coincidence that a lot of the early Blake Edwards films that were successful also used Jack Lemmon. I don't know if this is a widely acceptable analogy, but I kind of look at it um, where Wilder is closer to like Van Gogh and uh, Kubrick would be more Picasso. Um. Yeah, and especially Picasso in his later years, where it was three circles, a uh, line across the canvas entitled Nude Reclining. Yeah, but even some of his earlier stuff, like, I, I still, like, the execution is not, or is more important than the um, medium or the impression itself. So, um, we... We're limited, uh, like always, on time, so uh, let's just start running through this um, kind of uh, uh, quickly. So the opening scene starts with a car chase. I don't remember, there. like, there are plenty of, um, up to this point, like, uh, horse chases or, you know, there are some very infamous scenes from, um, uh, like, Stagecoach where you have um, them chasing in in that type of thing but i don't i don't remember too many car chases um particularly even beginning of film up to this point um that by itself is already kind of novel um you have it slowly moving into um kind of a premise where they don't even really depict kind of so modern day period pieces they're going to tell you almost exactly what time and place this was taking place they don't expect you to kind of figure it out as you go along. Um, this movie obviously takes place in either the 20s or early 30s um, with the, uh, within the time frame of Prohibition and uh, the speakeasies as um, the whole first act of the film basically has to do with um, the uh, feds busting up the drinking rings or the Chicago mob um, for peddling liquor. So, I mean, even for what's eventually basically a romantic comedy, 
it's kind of an odd way to start and launch yourself into the premise. And it, it takes a while to even build to the main part of the movie. I mean, this movie kind of has almost two act or two very distinct halves to it um, in that first part and really building up to the point where they have to start uh, cross-dressing to escape the mob. But it, And it's kind of um, serious. It's not necessarily uh, easy, funny shtick. Uh, I don't know if some of the jokes age incredibly well, but um, I, I just found some of it to be rather dark humor or very dark material. And then you have uh, eventually them getting into the uh, Chicago parking garage and witnessing like a mass murder, like for being a potential. Yeah. Yeah. I know what it's supposed to be. Massacre. Right. I know what it's supposed to be taking of, but for a potential comedy, that's kind of a weird like way to launch yourself into the rest of the movie. But yeah, it, it's it incredibly is. daring. It's, okay, and if you had to, if I had to say, what who would have done this film? Even to the point where you're talking about who he cast. The the federal officer was Pat O'Brien, who at this point in his career was not doing much. George Raft was doing B films until he got in this. This is the first A film he had done in almost ten years. You start looking at these people, and then you think about the dark humor and all of the stuff that's involved in the rewriting of history. It's Quentin Tarantino. That's an interesting comparison. I guess I hadn't made that that link, but um, given our that two episodes ago we covered Inglorious Bastards, it, you know, I I do see a sense of um, similarity in it. I don't know if it's quite the excessiveness. But then again, I don't have the right context for it. I, mean, I think if if you went and asked, and I'd love to see an interview, and I might try and just do some internet interviews with Tarantino as to who his favorite directors are. <clears throat> I will. He he studied film by watching videos when he worked in the video store when he was yeah. in like high school. He is one of the premier film buffs in Hollywood. Yeah, and he collects stuff. He collects these films. I will guarantee there's some place in here. If you ask Quentin Tarantino, he will say that Billy Wilder is one of his great influences. Um, I think it's probably that he takes off more recent stuff. Um, just having, so uh, he did a three episode arc on um, Bill Simmons's rewatchables podcast, but um, I, I think that there are enough influences going forward that if, if there is a direct connection to some of this uh, between the two. And I, I'm certainly um, saying that you can see that. So um, as we kind of already mentioned, um, basically the launching point for most of the film uh, is the uh, mass murder in the parking garage. Um, Jerry and Joe, uh, Tony Curtis and uh, Jack Lemmon uh, barely escape um, because there's a distraction uh, so they go on the run, and in order to hide themselves, pass off as um, female band uh, members um, in an all-inclusive or paid trip to Florida. Um, they meet the rest of the band. There's obviously strict rules um, and a, a clear prohibition on liquor, not only in the public, but in the band itself, even though uh, it seemed like everybody had very easy access to liquor despite prohibition. Uh, through the entirety of this movie, 
Like obviously, don't much know much about prohibition. Well, it's not a period that I've studied a ton, but it seemed like it was just as available as if there wasn't prohibition. Uh, watch the uh, the Ken Burns documentary on prohibition, and you'll realize that prohibition only made alcohol usage more uh, popular. Um. So uh, otherwise, um, we kind of. I mean, we've already kind of talked about the novel nature of uh, cross-dressing, basically, being a a high point of this, but also making a point to kind of turn it around on the level of, um, or highlighting a level of misogyny. I mean, for being for 1959, there weren't a lot of those um, uh, movies really commenting on that indirectly. And it kind of reminds me of the same way that, like, Gentleman's Agreement from 38, uh, that one for um, Gregory Peck playing a Jewish man, um, kind of did the same thing, where you walk a mile in my shoes type of situation from another famous Gregory Peck character in a different movie we'll eventually get to. But, like, that we're still dealing with some of this. I mean, that's one of the things that's, to me, just aged probably the best out of this movie is they were so far ahead of their time that they're still commenting on stuff that's apparent yet, even for us. And yes. this is a movie that was, you know, 70 years ago. They're making comments about the the fact that guys are, are uh, overly aggressive and are wolfish when it comes to women. So... Um, uh, other or as we kind of go along and it, we kind of got to it in the plot summary, um, a billionaire or a real life billionaire eventually comes on to um, Jack Lemon's character and tries to woo her him um, and while uh, seemingly at the same time, Joe um, is starting to try and make his move. Um, seemingly in the middle of this, uh, towards Sugar or Marilyn Monroe's character. Now, um, in just doing some background on this, apparently, and this is probably uh, Marilyn Monroe's most successful, um, at least critically, uh, venture, but apparently she was so basically drunk through most of the film or um, drugged up that she could not remember her lines and apparently both Tony Curtis and Jack Lemon took bets on how many takes it would take her in order to say a basic line. Yes. <clears throat> so uh, that was with the fact that she had Arthur Miller, who was her husband, and um, uh, uh, oh, the Strasberg daughter, uh, Lee Strasberg's daughter, um, was there helping her. And she still couldn't get the lines right. Well, and the the funny thing is, is that she wanted to do this film. And so then they felt that they had to cast her being such a gigantic star that she was the the preeminent sex symbol of the time um, that well, made, yeah. you know, this extra appealing, especially because, frankly, at the time, she was probably the only one with any name recognition out of the entire cast. Correct. Uh, Jack Lemon had only done a couple of things. Uh, Tony Curtis's big movie had been uh, Houdini that he had done like four or five years before. 
But and really, Marilyn Monroe wanted to do the film because she liked the part and she realized how much fun she had and how much success she had working with Billy Wilder when he directed The Seven Year Itch. Yeah. Um, another film that at some point we'll probably cover, but um, it may be a little bit. So with Tom Buell having one of the most uh, underappreciated uh, performances I've ever seen in films. So um, one of the few things that um, didn't age well for me is, is how much emphasis there seems to be on um, courting rich people through this movie and the like <laughs> emphasis on money. You know, I don't care how rich he is as long as he has a yacht, a private boxcar, and his own tube of toothpaste. Um, okay, so you don't matter or uh, don't care how rich he is as long as he's extremely rich. Um, are we are we really discussing this because that didn't age well only because of what it was that you were talking about. I mean, the fact of gold diggers yet to this day, should we just like like look at the sidelines of any NFL game or the uh, the the uh, um, courtside seats of any N- NBA player or I mean, come on, this still well, goes on. It's not nearly as blatant as it was in this. Safety and security are the number one aphrodisiacs, I suppose. Uh, particularly the womankind. So, I've always said the number one aphrodisiac is a fat wallet. No, it's safety and security, which can be bought. But that's why women like taller, stronger men. It can be relayed in a multitude of different things. So, um, obviously, as the movie progresses... Um, we kind of get to the point where uh, we come to a head. The mob eventually catches up with them accidentally, um, and we kick off the ending sequence, which we don't need to necessarily uh, spoil, but I guess what do you think of the ending? I mean, they obviously are going to escape. Um, It's a comedy, not a a tragedy. And um, they kind of just barely make it out of there, and... Obviously, Sugar falls in love with Joe, the person, finding out that they're both men instead of women. Yes. Well, I mean, it was a a decent ending. It wasn't the best ending. Um, The ending was kind of nebulous as they were doing it. Um, They shot it with the idea that they were going to end it differently, but never did. The last line of the film was just something they threw in because they didn't know what else to say, and it ended up becoming one of the most iconic lines in the movie. Not just the movie. I think it was number 48 on AFI's top 100 quotes of all time. (laughs) Uh, I mean, and frankly, it's one of the better ending lines of a movie that I've seen, you know, in a long time. It goes up on that list uh, of some of the best finishers. And I, I personally... I always love a good opening and I love a good ending. And if you can, because I remember going back to uh, early high school, um, I think it was uh, Pastor Suko from Freshman Band. And for whatever reason, it's one of the few things that stuck out to me. Uh, People remember how you started and how you finished. Everything in between, you could screw up as much as possible and they'll have no idea. Mm. I guess. 
So, um, I guess, uh, do you have any other comments on the, the scenes or, um, you know, anything at least just basic plot wise going through? No, not really. I mean, I, it, uh, it, it's one of these films that was done. I don't know if it was intended with the editing to be this way, but it doesn't drag really much. I mean, no, it, it, I would agree. The editing was pretty good on this um, overall. And uh, there are a lot of kind of quick jump cuts in a lot of this movie. Uh, particularly the um, sequence where um, Joe's trying to uh, get basically Sugar to put her, uh, uh, throw herself at him while Jack Lemmon's dancing with the old, with the old billionaire or millionaire, I guess. Billionaires didn't exist at that point yet, so um, that honestly was probably one of the better scenes for me. Um, I know we haven't quite gotten into the whole. Um, categories piece yet but um, you know I, I just like the way he um, flowed between the two sequences without really losing any of the attention yeah it did work well so um, I guess uh, do you want to just jump over to the categories then sure let's do that alright so um, just quickly uh, as far as legacy um, this one has a longer tail for, um, like, Hollywood, and obviously we mentioned that it's been kind of remade a couple of times uh, for both a Broadway play and musical, and kind of done a couple of times. So I'm going to grade it a little higher on um, Legacy for that, but it's not one that, like, the general public knows extremely well, um, and it's not one that um, anybody outside of either movie buffs or um Hollywood people are going to really know offhand. They should, because it's had a significant tale. Because this film not only influenced uh, it, it influenced other projects, which includes a TV show from the early 80s called Bosom Buddies, about two guys who can't get an apartment in New York and ended up living in a women's-only apartment and going in drag, starring Tom Hanks. Yeah. Um, was it, or, now, I, I'm not familiar with it specifically, but wasn't that preceded by Three's Company, where John Ritter was playing a woman? Or is that something else? No, John Ritter played a guy who was uh, a faux or a fake homosexual. They imply that he's a homosexual because that's the only way the landlord will allow him to live with two women. I see. Okay. So, but kind of along the same lines. I, I think you could kind of trace some of these um, aspects back, uh, and that's a good point by you. Yeah, because, I mean, you, you talk about the 80s, and again, I bring up Blake Edwards. Victor Victoria um, is, is uh, again... A, um, it, it, it's one of these movies that's really confusing. It's about a woman playing the part of a man who's pretending to be a woman. So it's a woman being a man pretending to be a woman. Okay. So, yeah, played by Julie Andrews. Anyway, it, it is one of the more bizarre films, but it's the same concept. 
which is this whole thing. And you can even trace it into the fact that drag was common even earlier than this because um, Milton Berle, um, his TV show, he often appeared in drag. So okay. this 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 is uh, this is just cementing in film what had been going on, and then you can look at other play or other um, films or studies where drag is common, which it became British. Monty Python was notorious for all of the performers appearing in drag. Okay. So I guess what do you or what did you list as your uh, grade for legacy then? I would go eight and a half or nine. Why? Because I had it much lower than that. Um, although I will I will grant you um, you've moved me up a little bit. I think I'd still go seven and a half, but I guess we'll split the difference and go eight, eight, eight and a half. Sure. I'll go down to eight simply because um, it wasn't the first, as I indicated. Milton Berle did drag before this movie, so I'll give it an eight. Well, and I just... Like the legacy is is a little bit different, so like I have its overall impact and significance much higher than I did its legacy per se. Um, just to kind of def- or um, put radiations on it. So like we'll just jump over to impact and significance. I do agree with you that this has a long uh, potential tail. Um, you know, being that it was a highly successful movie that kind of uh, upended the conservative nature of the movie approval uh, system and um, kind of undid some of those things. I think from a historical significance, um, it's high on that list. I, I think I might have even underdone it a little bit. And I still do think that this um, is one of those movies that, at least for comedy and pushing boundaries and the rest of it, um, still has a long tail, at least for industry people, um, yeah. with people that have a little bit more um, uh, sense of history or film history. So I, I originally, I think I put this at a um, eight. I think I'm going to move it up to a nine. I'll, I'll agree with the nine. Um, you know, and really, I, I'm somewhat surprised, and maybe it would take something like podcasts bringing this back this film really has something to say from uh, what is um, 60 years ago about the Me Too movement even. Yeah. And I, I, I think to some extent I can't understand why it hasn't gotten um, a renewed interest because of the cultural aspects of it. I still do think, you know, and famously, um, a former associate of ours or colleague at the office um, used to basically rule out any film that was in black and white. Um, I do think that there is a public um, difference when it basically, uh, frankly, if you've watched a movie before 1970, um, you're an oddball. Well... The only reason it was filmed in black and white because it was drama in the fifties was filmed in black in early sixties was filmed in black and white, and comedy was filmed in color. 
while it wasn't filmed in color, because when the rushes came back, Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis looked so ghoulish as women in makeup that no one wanted to see that. In fact, Marilyn Monroe had a clause in her contract that said all films that she was in had to be in color. And when she saw the rushes, she agreed with Billy Wilder's assessment and agreed to have it in, in black and white. By rushes, do you mean the dailies? Yeah. Okay. So um, for non-industry people, those are the basic um, scene clips of the day so that they can be played back, just letting everybody in. Um, oddly enough, and kind of a bit ironic, so we're in the middle of the quarantine of 2020, uh, for anybody eventually listening to this much later, um, but um, the AFI, the American Film Institute, started three days ago, four days ago, their movie club, and they're highlighting uh, a film from their registry every day. The film, of course, today was Some Like It Hot. So, I mean, the people that at least know movies still hold this in extremely high regard. Um, you know, we're, we'd, we'll eventually get down to it for recognition, but it was um, number 14 on their original list from 98, and it was 22nd in their 2007 list. So it's slightly moved down with a little bit of age, but, um, I mean, it's still in the top 25 of both of them, uh, or both lists. I mean, that's that's pretty good for a film that's uh, over 70 years old. Um, so, uh, novelty... 60. 59, Dad. Yeah, it's 60 years old. You said 70, over 70. Oh, I or suppose you're right. All right. Well, yeah. uh, of course, that's going to be a fair thing. But um, novelty is the next category. Honestly, I, I don't see there being much higher on the novelty scale. Like, I, th to me, this is a, the epitome of 10. I can't say that there's anything that I can think of that was anything more novel than having the two stars in drag for 80% of the film. Well, and uh, exactly. I can only think of things that would be equal. Originally, I had this at a nine and a half, but even in thinking about it as we're going through it, I've kind of, again, bumped this up, and that, that seems to be a recurring theme for me as we're going through this, but um, I just, I, I really can't see anything being more novel than this, only it's equal. And, you know, it, as far as a topic or any of the other things, I can see things being it's equal in novelty from what it tackles, and it wasn't necessarily, or like, eventually we'll get to it, but I always judged it by, kind of how ridiculously novel everybody says Star Wars was at the time. And that's always been kind of my benchmark for um, it was unlike anything else that they were doing. And if I put that standard to this movie, there's really nothing like it for several decades, let alone, um, you know, anything within the time frame. I will actually say it is more novel than Star Wars because at least Star Wars had a basic premise in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. No, I, I would argue heavily against that. Other than the fact that they both existed for a bit of special effects in space, they're almost incomparable in the other thing. Your better comparison point is is that Star Trek existed before Star Wars, and even that I find lacking. 
Like the special effects that were basically created and the amount of, um, uh, I guess not, um, what am I trying to think? Practical effects that Lucas created, the sets that were uh, done. I mean, it's not novel for its subject material, but it's extremely novel for what it accomplished and how it moved the industry forward. Like for what it did, and I can see another film as far as pushing special effects um, kind of similarly being um, at least close to this. I wouldn't know if it's um, quite that novel, but I think, again, for me, it's a straight 10. Yep. All right, so we'll move into classicness. Um, like I said, there, there are a couple of things um, that don't age as well like this is a comedy and comedies have usually have a hard time the further out we get from them um remaining funny um there are a few things that i did audibly laugh at but um also the whole notion of a gangster is kind of a bit outdated especially uh with all of the modern senses we have but uh, overall, I pretty much, again, this is one of those period pieces, which is a weird thing to say because I don't know how many period pieces per se they were doing um, back in the 50s. I mean, one of the more famous ones comes from the 30s, um, Gone with the Wind, but how many were they actually cutting back to stuff that um, was recent history or whatever else? Ben-Hur, The Ten Commandments. Uh, all right, well... I, I guess I will withdraw the comment, but um, it still applies our basic tenet that period pieces with, with the uh, benefit of hindsight, um, usually Grady's higher. I put it out at an eight. All right, I'll agree. Okay. Uh, rewatchability. Um, I put it at a seven. Um I don't, this movie was fine. Um, I could rewatch it. It's not going to be one that I'm gravitating back toward a lot. Um, it wasn't one that I, I just said um, I enjoyed, uh, like, I, or I would enjoy watching this uh, a lot. It wasn't necessarily high on my fun meter or um, the the stories that connect with me. But I certainly wouldn't have a problem rewatching this per se. So I put it at a seven. I might even be willing to go lower, but that's seven minimally. Here, here's the thing, and for those of you that don't know, we have had we had uh, nineteen exchange students living with us. Eighteen. 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 18. And uh, I always made a point of trying to get the students who were always young. And, and foreign, obviously, um, to watch certain films. This is one where if I had to create a list of, of films that I suggest that people watch, I would. And this is one where I think... Okay, but this is, I, I this is the difference between... This a, is a film that somebody should have seen and it have been in their re registry versus are they going back to it multiple times? Like, you and I are students of, um, like, Dodgeball and You Love Revenge of the Nerds and some of these other ones, um, you know, Animal House for You, I Can't Stand It, but or Airplane. I know I just listed off a bunch of comedies, but this was notably a comedy. Um, yeah. I just don't see myself gravitating back to it. 
because I didn't have the same level of fun as I did with some of those other movies where I'm coming back to it regularly and I'm looking forward to or enjoying, you know, looking forward to watching this again. What I'm the point I'm making is, is this is a film that I enjoy watching with somebody who has never seen it before, does not understand or know of it and appreciate it. And I take great fun of watching their reaction to what is a strange concept film that's 60 years old um, and then watching them kind of go, hey, this wasn't so bad. Yeah, I I suppose. And I've I've done that with a lot of films um, and I enjoy people watching stuff for the first time where I can kind of um, sit and watch them enjoy it for the first time. And if I ever in the situation where I'm lucky enough to have kids, I'm sure that'll be something that, you know, like most parents, you look forward to that whole um, aspect or like showing them a classic game or informing them of something. So, um, you know, that that makes sense. But I I just I can't see above a seven. All right, fine. So the audience score on this one was a 94 percent. So that translates out to nine point four. Uh, in the audience score, um, we've kind of uh, already um, gone um, pretty close to this one um, as far as uh, the Academy Awards and the recognition and some of that. Like I said, it was already on both AFI lists. It's on a couple of the other lists that um, we have, but um, it is the same as uh, another movie we've already reviewed um, from this same year. Um, and I'm trying to North by Northwest. So we kind of already have visited the Oscars a little bit, um, just notably to catch everybody up. Um, this did not win, um, best picture. It was not even nominated for best picture. Um, the, or Billy Wilder was nominated for best director. Um, Jack Lemmon was nominated for best actor. Uh, you had, um, uh, a couple of other uh, smaller nominees. It was notably nominated for uh, story and screenplay, although it lost out to um, Pillow Talk that year, or I guess, uh, excuse me, I had it in the wrong one. Screenplay based on material from another medium, so basically adapted screenplay. Um, It lost out to Room at the Top, which, given that the other ones in that category were Anatomy of a Murder and Ben-Hur, um, that doesn't reflect well on the um, Oscars per se, but uh, I wouldn't feel too badly for um, Billy Wilder in this particular sense, given the fact that we already kind of discussed it next or the following year. Um, he won big with The Apartment and Jack Lemmon ended up winning uh, Best Actor. Which he deserved. Uh, absolutely. Like I said, we'll eventually get to that movie, but... Um, that pushed, a, a, like we said, another um, different set of topics. So, uh, you know, the, the the nature of this, obviously we're dealing with some uh, particular heavy hitters in that uh, regard. So, um, uh, all right. So, but I'm, that... looking forward, I'm looking forward to doing The Apartment because two performances in that that have never really gotten their dues were Ray Walston and Fred McMurray. And I know you particularly like Fred McMurray because he's another favorite movie of yours. Um, the, uh, I think from 35, is that right? 55. 
55? Citizen Kane? No, no. Citizen Kane oh. is from uh, 1941. No. That's from 40, that's from 1955. Citizen Kane? No, excuse me, Um, the Kane Mutiny is 55. Not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Double Indemnity. Yeah, that is one of the, that's the first really uh, key, one of the key f- early film noirs. Well, now that we've completely confused the audience. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it happens some. Uh, this does grade out to a 62.4 overall um, points, and um, I would have to look here just quickly at where that stacks in the uh, overall hierarchy. Um, so just grant me a second. I think that does put it kind of middle of the pack of the uh, ones we've reviewed so far. Which is kind of... Not, I would have figured this to be a top 25% of the films we reviewed. Well, part of it, and again, this is where we, um, it's just behind last week's film, Goodfellas, uh, as far as um, the overall grade. So, but recognition has a significant amount to do with where the placement eventually is. Like, just getting nominated for Best Picture ends up giving you a significant amount of points based on our current um, iteration of the grading system. And again, this may be worth where we revisit some of these ones. Um, eventually, if we like decide on something else, and we'll play it by ear as we go forward. So um, number one on the list is still way out ahead, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So that's, that's an unusual one. But given that the AFI's last list had this as 22nd, like, Currently, third on our list isn't bad. Uh, I certainly don't uh, put it down for where it is at the moment, at least. Correct. So, um, that being said, um, uh, that brings us to best performance. Um, Who do you got? Jack Lemmon. Honestly, I think it's Wilder. Okay. Okay. And I, I just think it's where, like, you could easily say Lemon's uh, equal to him in the apartment. I don't know if Lemon um, equaled him in this particular movie. So um, I, I just, for, for what he was adapting and what he put forward, um, I have to give it to Wilder here. Okay. Well, in actuality from what I'm understanding is, is both from interviews with Jack Lemmon and from people who knew Jack Lemmon just played his mother. (laughs) Apparently that was his mother. Honestly, in the pantheon of great actors, like Jack Lemmon is underserved often. Like he, he was a wonderfully great actor that probably never got the same recognition because he was in a weird period of transition between the really old, like the James Stewart, John Wayne, um, uh, uh, Spencer Tracy era, Cary Grant, and the, the newer school with Hoffman and the independence. Well, I mean, but he falls in between that older era and the newer one where we got like Hoffman and Poitier, uh, Pacino, um, Jack Nicholson, all of those more classic ones that are now like the old guard of Hollywood for us now. 
So he kind of has this weird placement where he's in between all of those, and we kind of forget about that that distinct era. So, um, but uh, you're sticking with Lemon? Yeah, I would. So, all right, best scene. Uh, I have um, three potential nominees, at least for me, and you can add as you see fit. But um, we already mentioned one, the back and forth between the two couples on their dates, um, kind of the jump cut. I just thought it was one of the more um, gifted directing scenes and editing scenes, and it seemed to work um, very well, where it's kind of the height of the movie itself. Um, the next one I'd like to nominate is kind of the whole, um, bedtime on the train scene. Um, and that was, um, kind of introducing us to, uh, the more comedic element of this movie where we're transitioning and it kind of, um, didn't break, but you end up with like the entire band in one bedroom compartment on the train, um, made for some, uh, good humor. And then finally, I just liked kind of the writing of uh, how they went about it, but her meeting quote-unquote Mr. Shell on the beach and just kind of some of the the lines um, of the beach scene, to me, that would be my third nominee. Um, If I had to give it to one, I think I'd probably give it to uh, the back-and-forth cut uh, between the two dates, but um, what do you got? That wasn't a bad one. I guess I would probably lean towards that. I just found it ironic. This is a film supposedly set in 1929. And, of course, Tony Curtis is doing a Cary Grant impression. Um, yes. <laughs> which is just hilarious because Cary Grant wasn't even Cary Grant in 1929. Yeah. So, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I found it was kind of odd but you know it's fine do you have any other ones to add or uh which one would you go with no i i think that's right i i do find the homage to the um to the french farce where they're running through the hotel trying to get away from the gangsters at the end where it's like they're running in one door and somebody else runs in another and then two different ones come out and they don't know where they are and I think that was kind of fun, um, but uh, not really critically where I would rank it. I just said, I just thought that was a nice bit of directing um, that uh, I appreciated. Okay. Um, So that brings us to best line. Um, there is obviously one that sticks out and we'll, we'll kind of get to it. I will present the entire, uh, context, but, um, so a couple that stood out to me, um, obviously I mentioned the, I don't care how rich he is as long as he has a yacht, private boxcar and own tube of toothpaste. Um, uh, sugar describing, uh, how she's attracted to saxophone players. Uh, eight bars of sax, and I just come to them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, let's see here. Um, uh, other ones that I had. Uh, I feel like such a tramp taking jewelry from a man under false pretenses. 
get it while you're young. You'd better fix your lips. You want to look good for Oswald or Osgood, don't you? It's just going to break his heart when he finds out I can't marry him. So it's going to break Sugar's heart when she finds that I'm not a millionaire. That's life. You can't make an omelet without breaking an egg. What What are you giving me with the omelet? Nag, nag, nag. Look, we've got a yacht. We've got a bracelet. You've got Oswald or Osgood. I've got Sugar. We'll be really cooking. Um, let's see here. And then finally, um, you know, the, the most famous one, uh, I called mama. She was so happy. She cried. She wants you to have her wedding gown. It's white lace. Yeah. Osgood, I can't get married in your mother's dress. Uh, that she and I, we're not built the same way. We can have it altered. Oh no, you don't. Osgood, I'm going to level with you. We can't get married at all. Why not? Well, in the first place, I'm not a natural blonde. Doesn't matter. I smoke. I smoke all the time. I don't care. Well, I have a terrible past. For three years now, I've been living with a saxophone player. I forgive you. I can never have children. We can adopt some. But you don't understand, Osgood. And whipping off his wig. Ah, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. Um, it's probably... The summation, it's a, an incredibly good summation line, um, as well as um, probably, the, for me, the most indelible uh, ending of the film. Yeah, I guess. I think that is the best. Uh, did you have any other special mentions or nominees you'd like to put on? Um. Joe E. Brown, um, if you were a fan of Saturday Night Live during the era when it was uh, uh, Billy Crystal and such, and they they did some of these uh, people that were based in part on these, I mean, you really didn't know him very well, um, uh, but he had a, a really good part. He did a really good job. He could have really buffooned this, and he didn't. So I guess that would be one that I would say. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, that gives us a few minutes here. So uh, I would just like to remind everybody that uh, we would love it if you would um, rate and review the show if you've been listening. Um, so that kind of takes care of uh, this particular movie for us this week. Um, but, um, we did put together kind of an upcoming list if anybody would like to, um, kind of guest host. So, uh, upcoming movies that we are, uh, looking at. Um, so if you want to contact the show, uh, either get a hold of myself or Dana on Twitter. I am TJ three Duncan. Um, I think, what are you at Dana W Duncan? Yes. Um, so otherwise, um, TJ three dot Duncan at Gmail. Um, just very simply, I'll, I'll accept any, uh, uh, civil war history 63 at Gmail. So, but, uh, upcoming movies that we have that we're going to be covering, uh, apocalypse now big, the dirty dozen, uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance in the heat of the night, the dirty dozen, if, uh, silver linings playbook slumdog millionaire and groundhog day. Uh, if anybody would like to join us for those episodes, um, we'd be happy to have you. Um, like I said, just try and uh, reach out to us during that uh, particular thing, and um, we can go from there. 
Uh, any last thoughts for the evening? Nope. So um, the only other thing, um, just cross-promotion, is, is that uh, uh, I would like to mention that uh, I have a new podcast on the Tom Duncan Podcast Network uh, that started this week, uh, the Dynasty Download, um, just kind of getting all of my interests in line. So um, about Dynasty football uh, or fantasy football, um, specifically the league that both you and I are actually in. So if you wanted to pop over uh, on a different show once, uh, next week we're going to be com- covering the uh, pre-draft uh, positional and overall rankings and also doing a blind resume episode um, where we're doing um, blind comparisons. So, um, But uh, anybody should try and check us out on that show as well. Uh, we're available in all the same networks. So uh, that's it for us this week. Um, have fun, everybody, and see you back next week. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. After all, tomorrow is another day. As always, please subscribe, rate, and comment on the show from wherever you get your podcasts. It will help everyone else find the show and share in the fun. If you would like to suggest a movie we should review or potentially guest star on one of the episodes, please follow either Dana or I on Twitter uh, at TJ3Duncan or at Dana W. Duncan. 